Hello everyone, this is Pastor Jay Tyler from Holt Assembly of God, and I want to thank you for listening to this broadcast of Life in the Spirit. I pray that you are challenged, blessed, and encouraged as you hear God's Word shared in this message. And so today is part three of our series, and I want to talk to you about our first interaction with the Holy Spirit uh, and why that is so important. Our first interaction with the Holy Spirit and why that is so important. Uh, Jesus said this in John 6, 44, No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So no one can come to me unless the Father, and this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That word draw in the original Greek is the word helko, And it just basically means this, what it sounds like. It means to drag away or to drag off. And this word is used throughout the New Testament both literally and metaphorically. Both literally and metaphorically. The word is used, for example, uh, after the resurrection, after uh, Jesus was resurrected, he, he walked on this earth for 40 days, and there was a time where the disciples went back to Galilee and they were fishing. And here's the story, John 21, 6, where this word draw is used, or the, it's, it's translated a little bit differently here, but you'll get the sense of it. Uh, he, Jesus, said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some, find some fish. Remember, they've been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul or to draw in it because of the quantity of fish. It's the same word that Jesus used, talking about to be drawn by the Father, is the same word he's, talk, he's using here. They had to haul the fish in, they had to pull the fish in, they had, to, they had to, to drag them in. Another example would be found in Acts, when Paul and Silas uh, cast out a spirit of divination uh, from a fortune teller. And since the fortune teller was a slave and she was not able to make money uh, for her masters, uh, Paul and Silas were arrested, they were apprehended. And this is what it says in Acts 16, 19. But when her owners saw that their hopes of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them. Helco is the word again. Dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So again, when I look at this word, I think about the original verse we looked at there in John and how we are drawn to salvation or we're drawn to God. We're drawn to Jesus are we dragged there? Do we, have a, do we have a choice? Do we have a decision that we make? Or does that just automatically take place? So are we dragged away from our sin and are we forced to come to salvation? Uh, when Jesus says that no one can come to him unless they are drawn to him or drawn by the Father, uh, is he saying that in a literal or in a metaphorical sense? And we'll answer that question a little bit later in the series. But first of all, I want to say this. Either way, our first interaction with the Holy Spirit is before we get saved. Our first interaction with the Holy Spirit is before we get saved. And you say, well, why is that even so important to know? Number one is this. It shows you how much God loves you. How much God loves us is demonstrated that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. Here it is, Romans 5.10. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. No one in here was born a child of God. We were all born sinners. In fact, he, the Bible goes another step. We're not only we were born sinners, we were born enemies of God. But isn't it amazing that God in his grace, his love, and his mercy seeks us out. He finds us in our sin, and Jesus died for our sins while we're still sinners. 
None of us found Jesus, by the way. He found us. None of us were looking for Jesus. I was kind of searching. Well, he stirred that in you. You didn't find him. He found you. Because here's why. You were a sinner, and you were an enemy of God. And God in his love and his mercy finds you. It's his act of grace and mercy. We see this in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So God goes out of his way to draw us to salvation while we're still sinners, and that's his love. Secondly, why it's so important to know that our first interaction with the Holy Spirit is prior to salvation is it does this. It demonstrates how far the love of God will go. How far that we can steep ourselves into sin, but God is willing to go and get us out of sin. So we all know people who are far away from God and on a path that leads to destruction. It doesn't matter how engrossed we are in sin or how engrossed a person is in sin, the Holy Spirit has the power to draw that person out of their sin. Having family and friends who are far away from God is scary, amen? When you have people that you love and you just see them just the sinking, they're drowning in their sin, it, it just breaks your heart. It's worrisome uh, when that takes place. And God's love is available to them, and God's power is capable of pulling them out of any pit they're in. Look what the psalmist writes in Psalms 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet on a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. When I was a kid, our family had a cabin, and uh, our cabin was on the Eel River. It's in Clay County, uh, Indiana. And oddly enough, it was named after Henry Clay, uh, but the county had a lot of clay, a lot of clay deposits within the, the county, rich in clay. And I can remember as a kid, if you stood on those riverbanks long enough, especially when they were wet, you began to sink. And the longer you stood there, the more you sunk. And if you stood there long enough, and if you had shoes or you had boots on, you would try to pull, try to get out of them, and you couldn't get out of that clay. And then finally, you just pull yourselves out, and it hadn't happened many times, my feet came out, but my shoes stayed in the mud, stayed in the clay, because the suction was just so, so that clay just sucked you right in. And when I think of that, when I think of that verse, I think exactly of that, because when you read that verse, he's talking about a miry bog. He's talking about a horrible pit, a pit of clay, a sinking pit, in which you just begin to seep deeper and deeper, and that's what happens to any sinner. They are in a pit of sin. And they are, they are deep, sinking deeper and deeper as they engage in their sin. And the psalmist talks about being in that horrible pit and, and how he is delivered out of it. And we all know people, again, who are sinking in a pit of despair. And while it breaks our heart to watch it, remember this. God is not powerless to pull them out of that pit. God is not powerless to put them out. Of, it doesn't matter how deep they sink. God is powerful enough to pull them out of that pit. And it's very difficult to hold on to this truth, especially when you tell someone and you see someone who's just drowning in their sin and they're, they're seeking deeper. And it happens this way. You'll, you'll share your love and your concern for that person and it will seem to have the opposite effect. Instead of them coming out of the pit, they seek deeper and deeper and it can be disheartening, can it? But again, I want you to know that God's power, the Holy Spirit has the power to draw that person out from any sin. And some Christians and denominations, they read John 6, in a literal sense. They believe that mankind does not exercise a free will in regards to salvation. Instead, God makes an arbitrary decision 
regarding their salvation. And as a church and as a fellowship, uh, we understand this verse from a metaphorical sense. We believe the Holy Spirit draws people to repentance. And those experience, who experience salvation respond by their own free will to the grace of God. Some Christians believe, again, the Holy Spirit draws certain people to repentance while rejecting others. Now, I am just going to say this, and I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, but why would I ever serve a God that would save certain people and damn others to hell? While I would have a choice and why others wouldn't have a choice. It doesn't make any sense. For many of us, that might seem foreign to us. We might wonder, why, why do we even need to discuss this? And unfortunately, this is not a new idea. It's a resurging idea within Christianity. In a nutshell, this is the idea of predestination and irresistible grace. So God is sovereign. We believe that. We believe God is sovereign. There's nothing that uh, we disagree in that area. But he decides who the elect will be. So God chooses his elect based on his sovereign will. God predestines you to salvation. If that's the case, you can't do anything but go to heaven. Even if you want to go to hell, you can't go to hell because God has predestined you one way or the other. And what happens in that situation, then, if God has saved you and you are the elect and he's predestined you, his grace is irresistible. You can't resist it. So a person who's predestined can't turn away from God, no matter what they say or how they behave or how they act, whatever. They can't turn away because God has predetermined this. So if you haven't been selected by God to experience salvation, there's nothing you can do to be saved under this idea. You are predestined to hell. As a pastor, as a church, and as a fellowship called the Assemblies of God, we do not accept that point of view because it's out of line and out of character with the God we see revealed in the scriptures. We do not believe the Holy Spirit draws certain people to salvation while damning others to hell. We believe with the words of the Apostle Paul. He writes this in Romans 10, 13, for whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter writes this in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing, look, that any, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We believe that everyone has a potential to be saved. I want you to think about the people in your life, the people who you are surrounded, the people that you see. I don't care how nasty they are. I don't care what they do. They have the potential to be saved. We believe Jesus paid the price of salvation for all sinners, not just some. We believe that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We believe everyone has the capability of being saved, and God ensures this by giving everyone a measure of faith. We believe what the Bible says in Romans 12, 3. For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, do not think of yourself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. And here it is, look at this. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. God has dealt to everyone a measure of faith. Everyone, not some, but everyone. Now again, why would God deal everyone a measure of faith if some could get saved and some can't? Boy, that's a sick joke, isn't it? I'm going to give you the possibility of the faith to be saved, but you'll never be saved unless I choose one way or the other. It's out of line, completely out of line with Scripture completely out of line with the character and nature of God. 
we believe God's call of salvation is general. And what that means is that his call of salvation is to everyone, to all. That whosoever. It's not limited to a group, it's to whosoever. We believe the Bible says anyone can come to repentance because everyone has been given a measure of faith. How are we saved? Think about that. Ephesians 2.8, for grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The grace of God is his gift, and his faith that he gives you, that he deals to you, is a gift from him. We believe God has given every person a measure of faith to respond to the love of God offered through Christ. Those who believe in predestination would argue this. What about the person who lives in an environment or a culture devoid of Christianity? Let's give another example. What about the Muslim extremist who grows up and is taught this, destroy every infidel. If they don't accept Allah, they shall die by the sword. What about that person? They lived in an environment, in a culture where Christianity is not allowed. What about the, the South American Indians who live in the rainforest and they're isolated from the outside world? How can they be saved unless God predestines one way or the other? How can these people be saved? Well, the Bible tells us, church, in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is to be revealed from heaven against all godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, pay attention here. Verse 19, check it out. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have clearly been seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God has revealed himself to all mankind through creation, and they have this inward witness. The Bible says no one will stand before God and claim they never knew there was a God, because God makes himself known. So everyone, everyone will stand before God, not saying, well, I, just, I never knew there was a God. Creation itself testifies. An inward witness, I'll give you an example of this, Romans chapter 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. We're talking about people who aren't saved this time, people who don't know anything about the one true God, but they're living in accordance to the word of God. Verse 15, who show the work of the law written on their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness. And between their se themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. God has written his law on the hearts of mankind. That's why this, throughout culture, through culture and ages, you can find a similarity in the law of man. And what I mean by this, hey, murder is not accepted pretty much anywhere. I'm just saying as a general rule and a cultural rule, murder is not accepted. There are similarities we'll find. Why is that? Because God has written his laws on the hearts of mankind. God has given all mankind a measure of faith. He has written his laws on their hearts, all of them, not some. He's given them all a measure of faith. Jesus died on the cross for all mankind, not some. And anyone can respond to Jesus by faith and can be saved. Now, God has given us something called a free will. We believe we see that all the way from Genesis and life in the garden all the way to, to this day where we're here today. God supplies the faith we need. We respond to his revelation. But we must choose to respond to God's grace and his revelation. 
God doesn't do that for us. There's a story in the book of Acts that really shows us a great picture of how the Holy Spirit draws a person to repentance, even though you have miles between, you have culture and you have religion. You have all these boundaries in between a person getting saved. How does God take a person who is far away from a Christian witness, how can they be saved? This is a great story. Book of Acts, chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of her all of her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now note, this man is from Ethiopia, and if you don't know geography or how many miles, that's 2,400 miles away, 2,000 years ago, from capital to capital. 2,400 miles, 2,000 years ago. We don't have cars. We don't have text. We don't have social media. That's the, that is what we're, culture, we have religion, and we have miles. We have distance. So this man is not in Israel by accident. Philip isn't there by accident. Philip was led by God, but he wasn't forced by God. Philip could have told God, not today, I got something to do. But Philip follows God's leading, and he goes to Gaza. The Ethiopian was in Israel to worship God, to draw closer to God. He's on a pilgrimage, basically. And remember this verse in James 4.8, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It doesn't matter where you're at, where you live, how far you are from the nearest church, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He will move heaven and earth to get you a witness, a way to be exposed to the gospel. If we respond to God by drawing near to him, he will draw near to us. That's his word, that's his promise. Again, that promise is not the sum, that promise is to all. What does God do to get this man to a place of worship where he can hear the gospel? 2,400 miles are in the way. He stirs his heart. This man obviously is either an Ethiopian Jew or he is a convert to Judaism. And so he stirs the heart of this man and he goes, I need to go on a pilgrimage. I need to go to Jerusalem. I need to worship God. 2,400 miles. Can you imagine, imagine taking that trip and the terrain through, through uh, Central Africa up to the Middle East? Could you imagine that journey, what that might have been like? 2,400 miles in order to worship God in Israel. And at some point, and as this man is journeying to, to, to Israel, God stirs up the heart of Philip to go to Gaza. Philip obeys God, and they, they come together, they find each other, and the man, the Ethiopian, is reading from the scrolls. And he's not just reading any passage of Scripture. He's reading a Scripture about the coming Messiah, which we, of course, know is Jesus. The Scriptures are revealing Jesus. This man is reading about the Messiah to come. Philip is there, a believer, you can't tell me that that is not by accident. And some would say, well, that is exactly what we mean by predestination. I would, I would absolutely disagree. Because Philip could have said, I'm not going to Gaza. This man didn't have to respond to the stirring in his heart. He chose to. And when you make a choice to draw closer to God, again, he will move heaven and earth in order to get you an opportunity to hear the gospel shared and preached. It's not a forced encounter. Acts chapter 8, verse 35, continuing with the story. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now he went down the road, and they came to some water. 
And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Dunk that boy in some water. It's an amazing set of circumstances. Again, put it in the context of 2,000 years ago. An ancient world. Distance. Religion. Culture. And it all comes together. God moves heaven. And this man is trying to draw near to God. And God says, that man needs Jesus. And he gives him an opportunity to receive Christ. It shows you how great God's love is for us. Now, what does that have to do with our first interaction with the Holy Spirit? I'm glad you asked. Look at John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. We stopped there last week. Let's go on now. And when he has come, he will do what? He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit doesn't drag us. He doesn't drag us to Jesus. He doesn't force us to Jesus. He doesn't force us to get saved. The Holy Spirit uses conviction to bring us to repentance. I don't know how each of you came to salvation, but at some point, some point in your journey, you came to this decision. I am a sinner. I am a sinner, and I need to be saved. How can I be saved? This happened on the, on the day of Pentecost. After the disciples received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, after the disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they left the upper room, they go out to the temple courts, they start testifying of all that Jesus said and did. Peter, again, just a fisherman, being a fisherman, is so empowered, emboldened by the Holy Spirit that he begins to preach. He's not a preacher. He stands up and begins to preach, and he preaches a message, and it, it goes great. Here's why it goes great. I don't know. You know, if we can look at the words, but I don't know how they were, how articulate he was. But this, we know this, it had power. Because what happened was conviction took place. Because of the people that responded. And of all the souls that got saved that day. And this is what was asked. Under conviction, this crowd, as they listened to Peter preach. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's conviction, church. You ever been cut to the heart? You ever been, someone's preaching, and it just feels like, why, why is he stepping on my toes today? Why is he, has he, been in my, has he been in my house? Has he been in my mind? No, that's just called conviction. The Spirit of God is speaking to you. Now, when he heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When these people were cut to the heart, they were under conviction. The Holy Spirit used conviction to draw these people to Jesus. Church, it doesn't matter who you are or how much you love a person who is in sin, you can never take the place of the Holy Spirit. Don't ever try to take the place of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be the Holy Spirit for the people you love. And don't ever try it, because it ends poorly. Don't ever try to convict a person of their sin. And I know a lot of people, some of you have encountered that yourselves, where someone tried to convict you of your sins. How did that go? Well, it didn't go well. It ended up this way. You don't like that person probably still to this day. They're not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. That's his job, right? And what happens is this. We often try to convict somebody and it turns into condemnation. And condemnation is nothing that's from God. 
conviction is from God, but not condemnation. We don't want people to feel condemned. We want people to experience conviction. And we want people to experience conviction from the Holy Spirit, not the holy you or me. We can guilt people. We can coerce people. We can, we can try to do our, we can do everything. We, we can drag them to the altar and say these words. We can do all that. But unless it's genuine, it's not conviction. And only conviction will bring the change that is needed in their lives. My mom used to invite dad and I to church before we got saved. <clears throat> and there was times, I'm sure she was with him, a little pushy. And that time being young, I would push back. And I would let her know in some, in some kind words that I didn't need to go to church. And I don't care. I think she learned this just to leave me alone, but she prayed for me. And I know she prayed for me because all the posters that I had hanging in my, my room had oil all over them. She was praying for me. About six months before I got stay, saved, I started experiencing conviction. And I didn't know what it was then, but I know what it is now. And out of the blue, I just picked up my grandpa's Bible. and uh, My grandpa had passed away, and my grandma had given me his Bible. I just picked up his Bible. And I started reading it. Started where you should start. If you don't know what you're doing, start in the front of the book, right? Started in Genesis. Read through the book of Genesis. And then after I read Genesis, I thought, well, I'm going to go towards the back. So I said, oh, New Testament. I don't know what the New Testament is. But I'm going to read there, so I'm going to read Matthew. So I started reading Matthew. Skip forward, and this has been going on for about six months. I remember, and I only remember this, and I don't, I'm not proud to share the story, but just hang with me. I remember it was New Year's Eve because I was extremely intoxicated. And I remember this. The next day I had to be at work at 6 a.m. And it was a very short night, maybe a few hours. And I remember being extremely hungover the next day. And remember this, how miserable I felt and how empty I felt inside. And I remember the next week was the week of January 6th, 7th, and 8th. And the reason why I know that is because something happened. And Jenny and I did something together on that Saturday. I remember we did something during the day. It was evening time. I took her back home because it was about 7 o'clock because I had to meet some friends at a bar. And I remember going to that bar and the parking spot right up front, which is great because it's cold in Indiana in January. In January. So I'm like, man, great. I just pulled up. And I remember I turned the truck off. I just sat there. And I sat there and I didn't move because conviction hit me. And I was like, you know, I, I don't want to go in there. Because I know if I go in there, I know what's going to happen and how I'm going to feel the next day. So I decided this. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home. And I called Jenny back and I said, hey, uh, mom's been on me about going to church. You want to go with me to church tomorrow with? And she's like, yeah, I'll go. Went to church that Sunday. Would like to say I got saved, but I didn't. In fact, my mom asked me this. She goes, uh, did you enjoy service? I said, no, it was weird. I said, you, your, your church is a cult. I mean, this is all that happened. They started singing. They sang some more. Sang some more. People came to the altar. I didn't know it was the altar. Just people started getting up out of their seats, coming to the front. They're crying. They're singing. They're praying for people. I'm like, this is weird. But I'll tell you this. This is what happened to me. And I didn't tell her. I didn't tell anyone. While I was in that church, I felt dirty. No one told me anything. No one spoke against me. No one said anything. I just felt dirty. It's called conviction, church. My mom didn't have to tell me I was a sinner. No one had to tell me I was a sinner or I was going to hell. I felt conviction in the presence of God. I felt like 
I was dirty and everyone was clean. I didn't go back to church that next Sunday morning because I, I needed to work. I needed to make some money. But I did go back with her on a few Sunday nights. And that entire month, I just kept reading my Bible, and the Holy Spirit kept drawing me closer and closer. And after about five weeks, I came home from church, closed the bedroom door behind me, knelt beside my bed, and I said the sinner's prayer. 28 years ago. My mom was trying to be the Holy Spirit, but I rejected her. And I'm just letting you know, if you're trying to be the Holy Spirit, you will be rejected. But when my mom started praying for me, the Holy Spirit started working on me. And that's important to know. When we start praying for people, the Holy Spirit will start working on that person. Some of them need a lot of work. Remember that. Be patient. All of you know someone who isn't saved, and they aren't living for God. And you should invite them to church. Don't stop inviting people to church. You should do that. You should share your testimony whenever you can. Don't stop sharing your testimony. It's not what I'm saying. You should share how much Jesus loves that person. Don't ever stop sharing that. But what I'm trying to say is don't condemn them. Don't convict them. Allow the Holy Spirit to do that. Pray for them. Pray, pray they are, believe this or not, pray they're miserable. I'm not saying you should pray bad things happen to them. That's not what I'm, Pray they're miserable. Here's why. They're in a miserable pit. It doesn't matter how sinful they are. They are in a miry pit. They are in a hole. Pray that they slip to the bottom of that hole. Pray that they sink in that hole. Pray they recognize they are in that pit. Pray that, you know what, I'm in no other place. I can't go anywhere else, but, but I can't go anywhere else but up. I'm down far enough. Because that's when the Holy Spirit can grab them out of that pit and bring conviction into their heart. When they come to their senses and recognize how deep they are into sin, that's a good thing. Convicting power. And here's the thing, it's incredibly effect, effective in this way. Because once that person comes out of the pit, if they've dropped all the way down to the bottom, they don't ever want to go back to that pit. Don't ever pray a prayer that is, oh, just save them. No, God, get them. Holy Spirit, get them. If, give them every circumstance, every situation. That The only way they can do is just to come to their senses and come to this knowledge that I need to be saved. I am a sinner. I need to be saved. And this is our first interaction with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he loves us, church. And there is no sin that he can't stoop down and bring us out of. Don't ever lose hope for someone that you're looking at. You're like, how can that person as a drunk? How can that person as a drug addict? How can that person as a homosexual? How can this person as an adulterer? How can this person who was just, in, in just ingrained with sin, how can they be saved? Which of their sins did Jesus not die for? So the Holy Spirit can convict them and draw them to a place of repentance. That's up to them to respond because we have a free will. There's a parable I love when I think about the story, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. I'm not going to read it all. And you remember the son leaves home. He takes all of his inheritance, takes all of his money. He wants his, he wants his share of his inheritance early, and what does he do? He leaves the country, squanders it away, loses everything, finds himself in a pit. It's exactly what he finds himself in, a pit. He's in a pit of despair. He's broke. He's eating the food that is used to feed the pigs. He's in a pit. It's the best place for him, by the way. And we only know that through looking back at the story. Doesn't it break your heart when someone's in that pit, though? And you want to do everything in your power to bring them out. Don't. Don't. 
pray for them. Share how much Jesus loves. Share your testimony. But don't you go dragging them out of that pit. And I know that's every parental instinct that we have. But you're not the Holy Spirit. Now you can pull that person out of the pit and give them temporary relief, but guess what they're going to do? They're going to slide right back down in that pit. Why? Because that change has to come by the Holy Spirit. Not good intentions, not religion. Nothing in our power can do that. You can't save anyone. In that deep pit of despair, under conviction, the Holy Spirit does this to the, to the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 17. But when he came to himself, what had happened? He dropped down to the bottom and realized, you know what, this is not where I want to be. And he said to himself, said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, or sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Prodigal son comes to himself in that pit of despair, under conviction. The Holy Spirit is bringing conviction into his life. The prodigal wants to come home, but he's what? He's ashamed. He's too ashamed. That's where if you heap condemnation on that person then, that's a dangerous thing to do. Church, let's not damn anyone to hell, amen? He hopes his father will hire him back as a worker because he'll never accept him as a son. I blew my inheritance. I, I took half of my father's property and just wasted it. How will he ever accept me as a son? And what I love about the story is before he could even get home, the father sees him coming from a distance. What does that show you? What does that tell you? That father wasn't just going about his business. He wasn't, in, you know, I don't care what happened to my son. I just read him, I've written him off. No, he was looking for that child to come back home every day. He loved him. He goes out to meet his son, greets him, welcomes him home. And this is what he tells him in verse 24. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. I can assure you, the father prayed for his son. And I can assure you, there was many restless nights. And some of you face some restless nights and some restless situations with family and friends you love that aren't saved. If this son would come home and come home alive, is he even, even going to make it? He's in a pit of despair. He's in a pit that can kill him to destroy him. And that, again, that's our maternal, our, our paternal instincts, again, kicks in. I want to save them out of that pit because they're going to die. Church, this is what we call conviction. And it is a wonderful expression of God's grace. The Holy Spirit is waiting for the son to fall to the bottom, and that's when the Holy Spirit can draw him out of that pit. That's when he'll want to come out of that pit. And this is the moment the Holy Spirit is waiting for in our lives and the people that you love. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to bring those who are lost to conviction. We need to pray the Holy Spirit fills us with compassion for these people. That when they hit rock bottom, we are there to love on them and share Christ with them and help them. Help them in their journey to Jesus. This morning we're going to pray and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to plead inwardly to the hearts of people. We're going to pray that God's love will reach them, touch them, and minister to them. We're going to pray the Holy Spirit will bring conviction in those lives that we love. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this message. It was an honor to be able to spend this time with you in God's Word. If you have any questions or would like to find out more about Holt Assembly of God, please go to our website at www.holtag.org. 
and connect with us there. Until our next broadcast of Life in the Spirit, I hope that you have a great day as you serve the Lord Jesus with a grateful heart.